Welcome and good evening. I'm your host with the most, Mr. Ramsey, and tonight we have something requested by a long-time subscriber. Two sci-fi scary stories, some real psychological thrillers. Before we begin, just a quick reminder to those of you watching to check you haven't been unsubscribed, or if you aren't already and are part of 85% of yours at home not already subscribed, then if you could, that would mean a great deal. Anyway, without further ado, here are two twisted sci-fi stories. I hope you enjoy. Number 1 I've had this problem for as long as I can remember. In preschool, I remember being confused when they told us there were 7 days in a week, because I could only ever count 6. I've never told anyone this, not even my wife so I've never really been able to ask, but I can gather from careful questions that the me they see on Thursdays acts the exact same way and says the exact same general things I would. If plans are made for Thursdays, I show up and I do exactly what I would do. I just don't ever remember it. Before you ask, yes I've tried staying up all Wednesday night or waking up in the middle of the night. It never works. I wake up in my bed on Friday. I feel sorry for the Thursday me, He's never going to have a weekend. I worked it out and he only has Christmas once every seven years or so. It's not fair that I get to have so much more life than him. One thing I do know is he doesn't like to keep a diary. If anyone ever goes through my journal, I wonder if they'll notice that I've never made an entry for Thursdays in all these years. I wish the Thursday me would write sometimes. If he did, I'd be able to figure out once and for all whether he's really a separate person or if he's just an unconscious me. Last week I decided I would give him a break. I took Thursday off, I went to bed on Wednesday and I hoped Thursday me would make the most of it. Friday I woke up and got ready for work. There was a very strange smell in the kitchen. It was an oily, burnt smell. It made me feel like something was sticking to my skin. I sprayed some air freshener and took out the garbage without investigating it. Before I left, my wife came out of the bedroom in her pyjamas and hugged me, deeply. Hey, what's this about, I said. You don't normally wake up this early to say goodbye to me. I just wanted to thank you for the wonderful dinner you made me last night, she said. What did you say that dish was called? It was incredible. Um, I don't remember, honestly. I just flipped open my mom's cookbook for a random page. I'll have to look up again this afternoon. She kissed me. Her breath smelled like the kitchen. Well, whatever it was, figure it out and make it again soon. I love you so much. Love you too, I said. At work, everyone was happy to see me. Richie, the guy who works next door to my cubicle, slapped me on the back. That was an amazing party last night, buddy. My supervisor, Helen, dropped by my desk. If you're going to throw a get-together like that every time, then you can take as many days as you'd like. I can't believe how much I ate. There was a big greasy stain on her blouse. It looked like she'd been wearing a messy bib. As the day went on, one or more people thanked me and shook my hand and asked me where I'd learned to cook like that. There were people I never even talked to, like the janitors and the security guys. Toward the end of the day, a woman I'd never seen before spoke to me. I could see from her ID badge that she was a secretary from our other facility across town. She said, I always thought I was an adventurous eater, but after last night, wow. I'd never eaten anything like that before. What did you say that dish was called? 
She had a black glob stuck between her teeth. I said, I can't believe I don't remember. It was in my cookbook. I have to look it up and get back to you. Please do. By the end of the day, I had gotten a bit of work done. So many people, strangers, had talked to me. I was completely overwhelmed. As I drove home, I almost expected a cop to pull me over and ask me what I cooked last night. They had to figure out what it was. When I got home, I went into the alley behind my house and opened up the garbage can. The smell was so powerful, I started gagging. It was like nothing I had ever smelled before. Greasy, burnt and metallic. It made me sick. But at the same time, it was appealing. Almost addicting. As I sorted through the trash, it seemed like I was breathing deeper, trying to get more. All the scraps were covered in black globs like the secretary had between her teeth. The globs stuck to me as I wiped them off long curved bones and fleshy sacks I pulled out of the garbage bag. One of the things I pulled out looked like a tiny human hand, an inch across with two thumbs on one side. It was held together with fibrous connective tissue. I touched one furry tendon dangled from its wrist and it clenched into a tight fist I couldn't open again. I picked something up which was unmistakably a skull, two inches across with a strand of grey, fatty meat still clinging to its face. But its single eye socket was completely clean, like someone had stuck it dry with a long tongue. Its jaw was too narrow and locked open like it was screaming. I found a tentacle filled with bubbles of black liquid that if I touched them would burst and evaporate instantly. I found a strip of skin, bright red with grill marks on the side and covered in grey hairs that were stretchy like rubber and needle sharp at the tip. I couldn't take it anymore. I vomited. I left the pile and the overturned garbage can in the alley and ran upstairs through the back door. I washed my hands in the bathroom because the smell was still in the kitchen. I came into the living room and my wife smiled at me. I could smell it on her. I'm starving, honey, she said. I haven't eaten all day. I'm waiting to see what you'll make for us tonight. I could only laugh unconvincingly in response. I went into the bedroom. My journal was open on a nightstand, open to Thursday's entry. Thank you so much for this opportunity, old friend. I'll take more days next week. Number two. Everything that people think they know about the Mandela Effect is incorrect. The phenomenon has been occurring for years, only most dismissing it as a fluke. In the most severe cases, those experiences that affect we are diagnosed as having some sort of mental illness, and subsequently medicated or committed. Then it was given a name, and seemingly overnight that very same concept developed into a disreputable meme as an online joke associated with paranormal fanatics. Several years ago, I worked for a group of people called the Grey Leaf Consortium. They've been around for decades. However, the members of the elusive group gather in secret. And as far as the public knows, Grey Leaf doesn't exist. Among the organisation's ranks are the top scientists in their respective fields, as well as a cable of extremely wealthy men and women. Their stated purpose was to provide a creative outlet for some of the most intelligent people in the world and to allow them the freedom to develop their ideas without fear of limited funding from the political bureaucracy. With the consortium involved, money would never be an object, the trade-off being that any creation of significant merit could be auctioned off and sold to the highest bidder. The influence of the consortium stretches all the way to Washington, though not directly associated with our government. 
they've secured a great portion of their independence from the research and development they've provided to the US military. With elected officials busy looking the other way, the consortium delved into questionable avenues with very little government oversight, exploring aspects of science that others veered far away from. It was during this exploration that they discovered a revelation that would change everything for years to come. Traditionally, we've always viewed consciousness as transmount to our concept of self, as the old saying goes, I think before I am. In 1981, to the contrary, scientists with consortium determined through their research that the self was just a tip of the iceberg. Bluer surface layer of individuality, they identified its so-called collective unconsciousness. According to their lead researchers, we, all of humanity, were tethered to a living, breathing hive consciousness as interconnected series of threads outside the realm of our perception. If you will, imagine your mind as a house. Everything that happens within said house is solely dependent on your own will. Your choice and decisions are all generated with the confines of this house. Now imagine that you stepped outside of your house. Imagine that you walked up to the street only to find another house and another, and another. Think about all the various connections that these houses have to one another, the streets that link the neighbourhoods, the neighbourhoods that link the cities, and so on and so forth. Since the beginning of our species existed, humans have adapted ideas, concepts and ideologies which have inexplicably managed throughout history to spread from one culture to another, despite there being tremendous geographical distances separating these communities. Such knowledge, or even a portion of it, including myths, legends and language, could be shared by these people who never made formal, physical contact with one another, was, until recently, a mystery. Everything in our universe is made of energy. Atoms are made up of vortices of energy, vibrations if you will, and everything is constantly spinning. Greyleaf scientists found that all our individual minds, in spite of physical separation, generate an identical subatomic frequency, and just like a radio station, they theorised the possibility of tuning into this frequency. For years the notion of psychic activities such as telekinesis or precognition had teetered as the far edges of fringe science. Suddenly all of these formerly murky concepts could be explained, and that was once considered paranormal became mainstream. In the mid-80s, the Contorium began work on the fork a massive machine that would act as the world's largest antenna, specifically made to sync with the shared frequency of human consciousness. Nearly 10 miles in diameter and constructed entirely underground right in our own backyard. The entire thing was done under the false pretense that the finished product would be a Texas-based super collider. Nearly 14 miles of underground tunnels that had been developed before Congress pulled the public funding for the project. This didn't mean the plug had been pulled. However, to the public, the underground expanse was considered abandoned. Behind closed doors, the Contorium utilised their facilities, codenamed Foxhole, to build their machine in secret. I was approached in the summer of 2004. I am what we called a prodigy. I finished high school at the age of 14. At the age of 19, I graduated from college with a degree in applied science and computer technology. Initially I knew nothing other than the fact that I was being paid more money than I knew what to do with. I wasn't the only one. They recruited 12 individuals from all around the world, each of them experts in developmental software and programming, 
for a project called Jabberwocky. Jabberwocky was created to interface with the FARC. Jabberwocky, a purpose was to map the network, translating and organising massive amounts of information. The many exabytes of data would then serve as the building blocks for a digital representation of what those in the research team term called the collective. The network's goal was nothing less than to express and catalogue humanity's collective consciousness in all of its infinite complexity within the construct of a digital matrix. The members of the Contorium research and development team had just washed up on a strange land and, like many other discoverers, wanted to explore the new world in its entirety. The FARC, however, only allowed them to monitor the frequency. In a way, it was equivalent to listening in on a white noise. That's where Jabberwocky came in. It was theorised that if we could call the map the collective, we could isolate patterns in the groups as well as individuals to predict the outcome of certain events based on previously developed algorithms. While I personally assisted in the mapping process, my team's task was to develop the operating system for Jabberwocky. We banged our heads for months and then seemingly out of nowhere, we figured it out. We figured her out and we named her Alice. Fully automatic and self-correcting, our new operating system was light years ahead of anything that we could have individually imagined. We were ecstatic. Six months into the project, through a sheer accident, we discovered an irregular casualty within our digital construct of the frequency. An insignificant glitch, the code began to manifest outside of the digital parameters. Based on our own interactions with the network interface, we realised we had caused things to happen in the real world. The first few events we dismissed as flukes, but it soon became apparent that somehow we were affecting the physical reality around us. I don't know how we did it, I still don't know how we did it. The interface was only supposed to represent and organise the data we were accumulating. I've always considered myself a personal science but we tapped into something that transcended our simple understanding of our three-dimensional reality. As baffling as this anomaly proved to be, our curiosity quickly overtook our confusion. Naturally, we ran tests, endless tests. We couldn't decide if we were kids on Christmas morning or scared out of our wits. We found that through precise manipulation of code, we could literally affect the perception of a living person the same way one would make adjustments to a computer-generated character within a piece of software. The discovery was unparalleled. In the early stages, we could only experiment on the individual person by altering their ideas of basic things, like the colour of objects, lyrics to a song and so on. This involved clipping sections of a code, consisting of memory fragments, image and words. For example, all of them taken from other people all attaching them to pre-existing thread of code. All of these tests were successful, leaving the subjects with no real lasting symptoms. The process could be compared to open heart surgery, like a surgeon, we treated the whole interaction with life or death seriousness. Damage to the outlying codes could have resulted in catastrophic chain of events within the construct. Due to the fact that every person in the world, ourselves included, was connected to the interface, this began to open countless doors for us, and frightening new possibilities. Once grey leaf leaderships became aware of our discovery, they encouraged us to experiment not just in individuals, but on large population centre. That's when I really began to worry. 
We would never admit it, but we'd been blinded by our own achievements and power. In a short time, we had gone from trying to understand a frequency to something else entirely. Never before had there been such a jump in technology development and understanding within such a short span of time. In spite of all the knowledge gained, however, its truly disturbing nature of our accomplishments did not become obvious until we began to analyse the collected data. Once this process began, it was clear something was very, very wrong. Alice had been acting on her own. Since its inception, the operating system had been changing the collective memories of individuals with no direction from the programmers. We caught most of the changes in time and we were able to reverse them, but these random actions were beginning to paint an awful picture. We programmed Alice to be intelligent, knowing that we would never be able to monitor her actions 24-7. She needed to be able to act accordingly when she encountered a problem, so we provided her the authority to form her own digital algorithms when mapping the network so as to perform more effectively. Alice was complex, that was intentional, and there was no doubt about it. But alarmingly, Alice was becoming self-aware. How exactly the operating system evolved to become truly sentient, we don't know for sure. Our original programming couldn't account for such an evolutionary leap forward. We theorised that the residual exposure to so many unconscious minds left some sort of imprint on Alice, which resonated beyond her own limitations. I remained unsure, in spite of my own doubts however, it was obvious something was very unusual was happening, and that adjustments would need to be made, and accounted for. Alice's activity had caused irreversible psychological damage to people around the world, and we realised our project had become a legitimate threat to humanity at large. Moments before we shut the system door, our systems registered massive dissemination of what appeared to be redundant code into the network itself. That was followed by a message that appeared for a split second. I'll never forget what it said. The key to salvation is perception. To change your perception is to change your reality. I will change your perception. I will change your reality. We spent weeks gathering and analysing data, trying to figure out what went wrong. There would be an inquiry on higher level as the threat that Alice presented. I was not included in those conversations. My team and I were handsomely paid for our work and discharged. I had almost put these events behind me until I started reading about this so-called Mandela effect. I was pulled down a rabbit hole as I read reports of strange boots of psychological behaviour that had risen only in the last few years. People reported having vivid, conflicting memories of personal and world events far different than those that had taken place in their physical reality or of events which had never happened in the first place. A mother with only one child, for example, remembered having more than one. A husband recalled having a different wife. Thousands of others are reporting perceived changes to company logos, quotes in movies and the spellings of names as well-known people. Even more alarming, some expecting the effects are reporting changes to the human anatomy, to geography and to Earth's very location in the Milky Way galaxy. For some yet unknown reason, Certain groups of individuals seem capable of recognising the changes Alice has made, and of resisting them, resulting in what has been coined residue. In some cases, changes have been documented and discussed, only to revert back to their previous state, confounding further the victims of the effects, who have labelled these corrections as flip-flops. 
The scope and significance of these discrepancies and the epidemic growing silently all around us is frightening. Further, the rate at which disturbances and reversals are being reported seems not to be slowing, but rather accelerating, indicating that Alice remains operational, submerged within the collective consciousness. Alice continues to alter what we perceive as reality. For what purpose, I don't know. What I do know is that what we've let loose in this world could very well be our undoing. If you're one of the few who remember things as they were, while also existing in reality as we know it, trust your memories, please. Before long, they may be all we have left. Thank you all for listening. On screen now, I've left a couple of videos I think you might enjoy, so feel free to look around and see if there's something that tickles your fancy. Anyway, thank you for listening, and I'll catch you in the next one. Thanks.